today is January 23rd, 2014. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Xiaowen Bao, who is Associate Professor at the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute at UC Berkeley. Hi, Xiaowen. Hi. Uh, his work is aimed at understanding the influences on cortical representational plasticity in the auditory system during development and adult learning. Around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Hi, Hello. Charlie. Hello. We have... Uh, Alfonso Apicella. Hello. One of our new faculty. Welcome, Alfonso. Hi, thank you. And we have Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Nothing new about Todd. <laughs> okay, and I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Um, so today's big theme is cortical plasticity in critical periods. Uh, and, and, and the idea that the early acoustic environment uh, plays a crucial role in shaping frequency representation in the auditory system. That's sort of what we want to talk to you about. So could you talk about how much of this is built into the system as a result of evolution and how much is experience dependent and driven by the sensory environment? So for example, what comes to mind is um, ocular dominance columns in the primary visual cortex, who some believe are um, thought of as like an innate organizational structure and that's then modified by input. How much, where, how do you, do we think of auditory cortex the same way? Uh Yes, I think uh, it's it is the same. We think it's the same way. Um, the auditory cortex in the in the rodents and in, in, in humans um, is tonotopically organized, and uh, um, you can change the tonotopy, uh, the, the you know the fineness of the tonotopy, but uh, um, regardless of the experience, the tonotopy will still be there. And in the in the rodents, like in the rats. The low frequency is represented in the caudal side of the primary auditory cortex, and the high frequency is represented in the rostral side. And no matter what kind of experience you gave the rat, it will always be that, be like that. So there's a there's the the, the, the innate um, you know structure of the auditory cortex, and the experience will just refine it and shape it. So the, this idea about. Uh species specificity. So you've looked at uh, ethologically relevant sounds and how they shape cortical representations in auditory cortex. And you found some interesting things about that versus, you know, using sort of pure tones. Can you talk about, can you set that up for us a little bit? Um, yes. Um, most early studies used uh, um, pure tones to study critical pure plasticity in, in the auditory cortex. And uh, uh, pure tone is highly uh, unnatural, and it's, uh, it has no variability, and it's, uh, um, it has no complex structure. And it doesn't have the kind of uh, statistical structure that we see in species-specific vocalization or in the uh, you know, vocalizations of other species. Uh, so that's a, that's a big difference. And we're trying to understand the auditory system uh, in the in the in the context of natural experience, and the natural experience you know, contains uh, uh, vocalizations and, and uh, uh, you know uh, species specific, and also you know uh, vocalizations of other species, and we're trying to understand how th this kind of environment can shape the auditory uh, representation and, and perception. So I had a question about that. Yeah. So. Um, so you talked. You talked about the, the when you presented this this work. You talked about the, the tones, even with the tone work being presented at a, a, a 
a specific frequency of the repetition of the tones. Um, that's matched to some of the vocalization somehow, right. right? And then you you said that the earlier experiments that were had just had had used this frequency. And the question is whether uh, do you know why? I mean, do they get lucky, or is there a preferential uh, response uh, to the auditory cortex when you do that thing? Or like, how how did that come about that they? that people happen to use the right frequency for the plasticity experiments? Uh, I think that's a good question. And, and uh, uh, yes, auditory cortical neurons respond the best when you repeat the sound at a particular rate or you know, in the range of, of re repetition rates. And that range is, a surround, is, is around uh, 8 hertz and from 6 to 10 hertz. And I think that's why uh, the early study, in the early studies people used that rate or those rates because the auditory cortical neurons respond to it very well and they probably thought that uh, um, when the cortical neurons respond, respond to it well, uh, will, will have, the sound will have a stronger effect on, on the... So they respond to it well in anesthetized animals when you're, uh, when that, you're mapping the cortex? That's right, that's right. And, and also, I, I believe it respond to it well even in the uh, awake animals, and I recorded from awake animals. Not, not re I didn't record the single units, but I recorded like a, a cortical EG responses. They respond to it well. Uh, if you look at the EG responses, and, and that's that's uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm saying that they probably responded very well. It's the right frequency range for thalamic augmentation, and yeah. if you just stimulate a any sensory system, and the thalamus seems to kind of amplify stuff that gets repeated around six. Yeah, that's right, yeah. and and I think that's a that's a point. And uh, you know, why animals produce vocalizations at that rate and respond to it well at that rate? I think the whole brain is probably oscillating, uh, you know, well in, in at that rate or in that range of rates, and uh, and that's a good thing because. Then the the vocalization is produced at that rate, and the auditory system is, is is better processing the the information at that rate, and 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 changes its uh, representation when the when the sound is produced at that rate. So the motor system and the sensory system fits together, and and that's that's good for the whole system. But I mean, I don't I don't want to seem like a, a hard guy, but it seems to me that if the thalamus is responding better at that repetition rate then as far as the cortex is concerned, the input is louder. It's just a stronger input. Whoa, so maybe, maybe it's... No, no, I mean, if you record from the thalamus, oh. you see after the thalamus could respond to uh, repeating sound at a much higher rate, actually. And they can, they can re respond to uh, repeating sound at uh, 40 hertz. People have tried this. And this 6 hertz, 6 to 10 hertz, it's kind of unique to the uh, the cortex. Mm -hmm. To auditory cortex, right? I, well, I study auditory cortex, so it's. I, that would stimulate the thalamus and record in cortical neurons, and. Well, if you record. It's this crazy stuff at six hertz that just grew and grew and grew in the cortex. That's right, because you're recording from the cortex. Yeah, that's true. If you record from the thalamus, then you stimulate... Yeah, thalamic augmentation, but I guess that's because... It's maybe it's augmentation of the thalamic synapses, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it, it could be at the synaptic level that's of right. that, or it could yeah. just be cortical. Um, so do you have any opinions on whether this is a, 
So the way you say, wow, the whole brain is oscillating and that's great. Is there a... Because uh, different people will say that it's the... will cause one part of the brain to say the reason for this is oscillating here and then it makes sense to all the other systems uh, follow. For example, you could say that you vocalize it uh, at... 8 hertz or whatever because your auditory cortex is, is uh, tuned to 8 hertz and therefore that's the one you can get your signal through. Um, or you could say that you vocalize at 8 hertz and then your auditory cortex develops or evolves to be sensitive it's to the chicken and egg thing. Right. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> it's precisely a chicken and egg thing. And uh, uh, my, my opinion, I don't have strong evidence, but my opinion is that the, 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 this, this oscillation and this rate is a, is a is a general uh, phenomenon in both motor and sensory cortices, and uh, in many species. I mean, in human, uh, we have you know motor tremor at, in that rate, and uh, uh, you know the temporal modulation of speech sounds is in that rate, and uh, um, there there is this paper talking about uh, hand babbling in infants. You know, in infants before they can make a. a uh, speech communication sounds. They, they they use their hand to communicate, and the hand babbling is in that frequency in, in that temporal range. So I mean, this is kind of universal to me. It seems like it's kind of universal uh, for both motor and sensory system, and it's uh, it, it it exists in, in many species. So do you know you're because you're also looking at kind of more naturalistic sounds, and it's easy to go to species specific. Uh, or conspecific vocalizations is a uh, naturalistic sound uh, that may be relevant, um, but in some sense they're super behaviorally relevant in in a whole different kind of way. Um, then you then you had done some you know jungle sounds or whatever, but there's also related to this this issue of the repetition rate. There's kind of self generated sounds. So I don't know if anybody recorded a rat when they move around. Do they make sounds? Yeah, like at, at that kind of at that kind of rate, the spectral content of when they move around, are they generating sounds at a at a given frequency, running rates, and other kinds of things that may be helpful to know kind of what's going on around you? Uh, you know, we, we recorded uh, from uh, adult rats and uh, uh, in a kind of natural kind of environment. So we put a female rat and a male rat. In the in the sound box, and uh, they can you know, move freely. And we put a speaker, in, I mean a microphone, in in the sound box to record their vocalizations. And that's what I showed you uh, today in, the, in in the talk. You know, the spectrogram of the adult vocalizations. That's made by the um, male rats uh, during this kind of natural courting behavior. So they are moving. They were moving. So, but how about the, are the movement sounds? That, uh, the ever? movement sounds, uh, they're, they're relatively random, I guess. Yeah. So I want get, to get back to the link between perception and representations yes. um, that you're interested in. So one of the problems that you thought a lot about is how um, auditory input, uh, which is sort of a spectrally continuous um, input, is perceived categorically, right? That's right. Um, so uh, the example that most people think of and that you've given is how la and ra are so spectrally close, yet we perceive them as, di as distinct um, categories and you can sort of manipulate the sounds and yeah. there's a distinct boundary at which one becomes the other perceptually. So how, 
Can you tell us about your ideas about how these categorical boundaries develop in perception based on based on your studies? Uh, there, there are two components in there. So there's innate component and there's innate boundaries uh, that people have found in uh, newborn infants and they have found it in animals that have never had experience of human speech sounds and they have rec people have recorded from the auditory cortex uh, from the, the, the primates, the non-human primates, look at how they respond to uh, speech sounds and how they respond to speech sounds at a boundary. And they found that uh, in, you know, in one case, they found that the cortical responses to the speech sounds is, is, is categorical. Um, when you present one speech sound, uh, you get one peak of responses. And you can gradually morph that speech sound to a, a second one. And you, you know, initially, the, the, the neurons will still respond with one peak. But at the boundary, at the categorical boundary, the neurons will start to respond with two peaks. And then, you know, the neurons keep responding with two peaks until you reach the second speech sound. So you morph this speech sound from A to B, and in, at the, the, the neuron responses will respond to it categorically. So one peak. And then the boundary, it changes to two peaks, and then keep on is two peaks. So you know these are in in uh, non-human primates, and they, they have never had the experience of speech sound, extensive experience of speech sound. So there's a, there's a, a a innate component in uh, categorical perception of speech sounds, but at the same time, the, the categorical boundaries are modulated by experience, by speech experience. You know, one uh, often cited example is the, the difficulty the Japanese speaker had with uh, discriminating law and rock. I mean, you know, and that, that, that shows that uh, experience shapes the, the categorical boundary and can change it, can eliminate categorical boundaries. So, you know, there are two kinds of uh, components in it. So is categorical perception a cortical phenomenon? Because, yeah, I mean, you test your, you know, the effect of reorganizing the cortex by using frequency discrimination tasks. Yeah. And I think that you can you can tell us something about this, but I don't think that all frequency discrimination requires the cortex, and there's only special kinds that do require the cortex. What are the what's what's the stats um, of that? Yes, um, so in animal research, there there are, you know uh, earlier papers uh, uh, talking about frequency discrimination, and uh, in in rodents, you can lesion auditory cortex; they can still discriminate uh, uh, frequencies. Uh, but it doesn't mean uh, in normal condition, uh, in you know, normal animals, in normal rodents, uh, frequency discrimination doesn't involve auditory cortex. And actually in the, in the, in the study, um, people train animals, to uh, rats, to discriminate frequencies. And then they temporarily inactivated auditory cortex and they, the rat was not able to do uh, frequency discrimination when the auditory cortex was temporarily uh, inactivated. Any kind of frequency discrimination. So it's not a matter of the cortex handling certain kinds of tasks and other places, other kinds. I, I think in normal cases, the auditory cortex is involved in sound perception and all kinds of sound perception, and it's, it's, it's required uh, for frequency discrimination. But if you lesion the auditory cortex, the animals could do the task. Whether they can hear the sound is another question. They can do the task. They can you know, respond differently to two frequencies. But are they hearing it, or there's a kind of a, you know, 
in human, there's residual vision. You can you can lesion uh, lesion the the um, visual cortex. People with uh, cortical lesion uh, uh, cannot see things, but they can navigate through a room without bumping the chair. There's a residual vision. So, but they can't see it. They can't see things. So maybe you know the the frequency discrimination in cortical lesion rats is due to kind of residual hearing, auditory, yeah. uh, um, and that's possible. So there is expansion of, they don't remove the entire auditory cortex, correct, in this lesion. Probably can be still, no. there they, is still a partial a removing of the auditory cortex. It can be an expansion. Other experiments where animals were completely decorticated and continued to do auditory discriminations back in the 50s. This is old stuff, but it's definitely true that the thing he's talking about, which is a like very simple... Back then, the story was, as I understood it, that animals could learn to discriminate two frequencies, but they couldn't dis learn to discriminate uh, sequences. sequences. Yeah, that's right. And is, it, is that that's, that's, that's still true. That's yeah. still true. So, you know, you can lesion the auditory cortex, and they can discriminate frequencies, but uh, they, they cannot discriminate... Uh, a sequence sequences, let's say, from low frequency to high versus from high frequency to low. Yeah. I mean, they cannot do that. That just made me think: is the experience dependent plasticity is that a cortical phenomenon, or is that something that's sort of feed forward from brainstem nuclei? Uh, there are different opinions on that, and uh, I tend to believe it's uh, it's mainly cortical, and uh, uh, there there are experiments showing that there. Are, there is subcortical plasticity, and um, so it's it's a it's probably both, but the main part of it is in, in the auditory cortex. That's my opinion. And there's extensive uh, you know top-down projections from the auditory cortex to subcortical areas that could modulate response properties in the subcortical auditory nuclei. And uh, I think uh, uh, Dr. Suga's lab had done a lot of uh, work on that. They you know, inactivate auditory cortex and look at the, uh, the effect of experience on the subcortical areas. And they show that uh, um, it can eliminate a major part of that, uh, the, the changes they saw in subcortical area by inactivating the auditory cortex. So uh, I, I tend to agree with them. So in terms of critical periods, so um, how do we define the scale of critical periods? Because on the one hand, uh, you're looking at how, how young are your rats? They're sort of uh, you know we we do our sound exposure uh, typically from postnatal day nine onward, and uh, uh, most of the time we do it we, we expose them up to uh, postnatal day thirty and beyond. So he's, yeah, and but there's another study that. Specifically, looked at the critical period for tone-induced map change, sensory map change, and they defined it the, the a much narrower critical period. That's roughly, I think, from postnatal day eleven to day thirteen. I don't remember. I don't remember precisely the, the critical period, but it's in that range from postnatal day eleven to day thirteen. It's very narrow. But in the in the uh, recent study we did, we exposed animals to complex sounds. And, and look at how that influenced the, the uh, cortical representation of different sound features. And we exposed the animal uh, in different time windows from postnatal day 8 to day 35, 36. And we divided it into four windows. And we found that actually complex sound, like down sweep, downward sweep, frequency modulated sweep, can induce changes in all the windows. 
And depending on the windows, it induces different kind of changes. If you expose animal in the very early window, you change the sensory map. If you expose animal to the same downsweep in the second window, uh, it, it will change the tuning bandwidth, but not the map. And in the third and fourth window, you change the neuronal selectivity for frequency modulation direction and frequency modulation rate. But you don't change the sensory uh, map or you don't change the sensory uh, tuning curve, the tuning bandwidth. So it's a kind of an evolving, uh, we call it sensitive periods within the, cr the, the, the critical period. So is that, is that related to sort of the, the, ma the maturation of the periphery? Because you sort of have to think about it in terms of the cochlear maturation as well, because it has to be a reliable input. Uh, I mean, is that, or is that all happening way earlier? I, I think, I mean, the, the, the cochlear maturation is probably happening earlier, not into the, the you know the day thirty or so yeah. rent probably. Uh, I, I think what we what we found is that it's kind of correlated with the maturation of the cortex, cortical responses. You know, in the in the first window we see the, the emergence of the cortical map. And in that window if you change if you uh, you know give the, the animal's experience uh, experience uh, to certain features, you'll change the sensory map. And we saw that in the second window uh, the tuning bandwidth changes. And in that window, uh, if you expose them to uh, downward uh, frequency sweeps, uh, that will broaden their tuning curves. In the third window, we, we saw that actually uh, the, the um, frequency sweep selectivity, uh, 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 frequency modulation selectivity changes in the, in the third and fourth window. And in that window, you can change the uh, frequency modulation selectivity by providing complex sounds. So it's it's kind of matched with the development of the cortex. These are Piaget stages for the auditories. <laughs> so can you use can you use that way of thinking to because these notions of building up stimuli and complex stimuli, the you know they're they're pretty they can be pretty arbitrary, right? So you can you can talk about tones and you can talk about frequency and then you can talk about bandwidth or you can talk about sweep. I mean you can make up lots of different. Uh, particular kinds of parameterization. Uh, right. So if you start with simple parameterized uh, ways of looking at sensory stimuli, that's what you get. And then you get to the point where, and then you go to the other extreme where you get some natural stimuli, you either get conspecifics or you record in a room or whatever. And in between, it's very hard. I mean, they made some progress in the visual system, but it's still pretty hard to get any kind of parameterized sense of what Objects are how they're built. What are the building? What are the dimensions that things are sensitive to? But it seems like if if you can get a, a if if there's a developmental trajectory for those things, then you may be able to tell well, what is it that's different between this day and that day. Uh, I change one parameter and they do something different, but maybe you could use that difference to probe kind of how what's being added at the next stage, right? Yeah, what is it about the the real responses and and that they can't do later? I mean, it's the it's the idea of a hierarchy of of sensitivities or the right representation. What's that? To find the right parameters. Yeah, let the development guide you to find the correct parameters. Right, because they can't do something else. There's a lot of stuff they can't do. Uh, right. That's right. And then you could maybe hone in on what what the difference is. What's what aspect of Representation or perception is being developed right at this stage. Yeah, 
yeah, I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that. I think uh, so. It's a good point, and uh, um, the hierarchical development of the of the uh, sensor representation. Um, I, I think we, we, we see it in, in uh, human human speech development. You know, in the early days, in the, you know early postnatal days, you you change the sensor shape the sensor representation. They can better perceive speech phonemes, and then you know when they can do that, uh, they can they can um, better segment uh, speech streams into probably words, you know, if, it, if they cannot tell the phoneme, the different, the, the, if they cannot perceive the phonemes efficiently, they cannot segment the, the, the stream of phonemes to, into words. And then, you know, when they learn the words, they can associate the words with meaning and, you know, so on and so forth. In the auditory system, it's, it's um, in, in of the rodents, I think, uh, well, similar things probably happen uh, at, at a lower, lower level and uh, in a smaller scale, I guess. So you talked about different stages of cortical maturation. Can you explain what you mean? Um, you know the the uh, the neurons and you know the, the thalamic neurons will enter the, the auditory cortex at some point of, of, of postnatal development, and then you know after that there's the the you know I don't know if it's totally after that or or you know, during. I can, what I can say is that during a specific period of time, then you have the uh, maturation of the inhibitory neurons in the cortex, and then not maybe not after, but in in another specific window, you have you can have um, intracortical uh, projections maturating, and you know these things could happen in different windows, and uh, um, and there might be uh, sensitive periods corresponding to. Changes in these in these uh, anatomical circuits, and um, so and that could be the the basis of the the multiple sensitive periods. And um, we are trying to understand this uh, right now. So what we what we're trying to do now is to um, play sounds at, in different time windows, and then look at the functional connectivity in the auditory cortex through a computational method called Ising model analysis. So basically, we record from multiple sites simultaneously, and by looking at the pattern of the activity, you can sort of derive the uh, strengths of functional connectivity between sites. And uh, uh, you know, with a with a four channel, uh, with a four uh, uh, shank uh, um, polytrode, sixteen channel, four shank polytrode, we can record from multiple layers, multiple columns, and then you know we can de derive functional connectivity within the columns, within the layer, or diagonally, or we can derive functional connectivity between sounds and and sites that will uh, approximate the the salamic cortical input or you know, subcortical and salamic cortical sensory input. So we can look at all these functional connectivity and see how they change to, during development and how they are modulated by experience in different uh, sensitive periods. And by doing that, we hope to, to, to get a picture of uh, uh, changes in, in functional connectivity development and, and, and plasticity of functional connectivity uh, in, in, a, in auditory cortex. I have another question for you. Since we are in the era of optogenetics, correct? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about how different neurons play a different role in this critical period of plasticity? If you play, for example, if you either photoactivate or photosilence parvalbumin interneurons, how is they going to affect the critical 
period of learning and the topic map in the auditory cortex? Well, I think it would definitely modulate it uh, because uh, the power of building positive interneurons have been shown to be critical for critical period, and you know uh, you can express uh, more um, uh, neurotrophic uh, uh, factors in the in the in the cortex to speed up the the maturation of the inhibitory neuron, power being positive inhibitory neurons. That will speed up, or you know, that will speed up the development and 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 uh, uh, the. Uh, critical period. So the critical period will, will uh, happen earlier. And you can, you know, um, knock down or knock out uh, some of the, 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 uh, the GAD, the GAD 65, um, the, that uh, synthesize inhibitory neurotransmitter. And uh, that will delay critical period. And so the cortical uh, inhibitory neurons modulate critical period. That's, uh, that's, that's been shown. And if you uh, optogenetically manipulate, uh, you know, uh, power being positive in the neurons. Um, I think you will modulate the, the beginning and the ending of uh, critical period. And do you think that is only parvovolin neurons, or is also, for example, the somatostatin neurons play? Because these neurons, they have the synapse on different compartment of the cells. Correct. For example, the parvalbumin, the synapses on the soma, they're perisomatic inhibitory neurons. Vice versa, the somatostatin on the low threshold spark interneuron, they synapses on the dendrites, correct? Where all basically the synaptic integration should happen. What do you think are the role of these two different inhibitory neurons in uh, cortical plasticity in the other three Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's a very interesting question. And what we know is that the, uh, you know, the, um, Takao Hinch's group has shown it before that the power booming neuron is kind of correlated with the critical period. And the maturation of power booming positive in the neuron is kind of correlated with the critical period. The role of some statin neurons or other types of cortical inhibitory in the neurons. Uh, we don't we don't know that for sure, and and I think it's an interesting question. I think uh, people should look at it with the available tools now. I have, I'm intrigued by one thing about your work and uh, multiple things, but just one of my, it's on my mind right now. Uh, when people study the tuning curves of auditory neurons, they they focus on the center frequency. That's right. But but you are giving more. You pay more attention to the flanks, to the steep part of the tuning curve, where little changes in frequency can make a big difference in the neurons firing. And uh, so I'm wondering, I mean, that sounds pretty cool to me, but I don't know exactly what it means in terms of the model you have of how the neurons represent sound. So in a very simple model, people think, well, the neuron says, I'm firing, and therefore there must be some spectral composition that includes my center frequency, which of course isn't exactly true because it could be a little bit off-center. Uh, but if the neuron's reporting is really about the steep part of its tuning curve, then is it the modulation of its rate over time is indicating that frequency is changing? Or, you know, what, what, what should I learn from the idea that the steep part of the tuning curve is important? Uh, that's a that's a very good question. Actually, uh, there, there are 
there are two things uh, I think uh, is important for perception. One is uh, the robustness of the perception, and one is the the sensitivity. Okay, so uh, you know, the, the, say frequency discrimination, it depends on the sensitivity to the to, to the changing features, and uh, um, so you can you can better perceive things when the neuron neuronal firing rate changes and uh, uh, changes the most. And uh, um, so, you know, you can discriminate things better. But it doesn't mean that you can perceive sounds very reliably at that point. And on the other hand, uh, having a lot of neurons tuned to one feature will, will give you a very robust perception of that sound, that feature. But you become less sensitive to small changes in the features. So. Basically, the, 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 these two, there's two, two parts there. Um, it's, whether it's good or not, depending, it, it depends on, on, on what you want to do. I mean, uh, in my opinion, this, the one of the main goal of the auditory system is to recognize sounds and discriminate that, that sound with sound of a different category, not just a different sound, but different category. We really want to associate a particular sound with something discrete, a, a identity of something. So in order to do that, it's, you, know, you, you want to have categorical uh, representation and perception of sounds. And in order to do that, you, you have two things. One is a categorical center, and you want to have a robust perception of the categorical center. When you hear it, it it's not going to be mistaken by anything, and, and that's the center. And that is better represented by, um, by the center of the tuning curves. And then at the boundary, you, you want to have sensitivity. You want to you be able to tell that uh, whether the sound is on one side of the boundary or the other side. And there you need uh, really um, sensitivity and, and you want to discriminate sound better. And that's better served w with the slope of the tuning curve. And you know, better sensitivity at the slope, at, at, the, at, the, at the boundary, doesn't mean you perceive the sound very reliably. And actually, sometimes you perceive it not so reliably. I mean, if you present the sound at the boundary, 50% of the time, you hear as 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 one side as as being in, in one side, and the 50% of the time is being the other side on the other side. So it's not reliable, but you are really sensitive to the small differences of the features. So I see. So you, uh, also, I was misinterpreting it. So you're still taking a sort of uh, steady state view with firing rates. So the idea is, I play this sound and and I hold it there, and I let the cells all reach their steady state rates, and now I'm just trying to figure out what that sound was. And for that, the, the center frequency is still the, the most important thing. It's just you get a sudden drop off if you have down the, down the sides of the curve. I was thinking that if, if the steep slope of the tuning curve was the important thing, then maybe you're listening for little shifts in frequency because that's the place where a cell would be the most sensitive to little shifts in frequency. But that's not the way, you, that might be true too, but that's not the way you're thinking about it. Well, that's, that's precisely right. <laughs> and uh, regard, in, in regard to my opinion on this, but there are different, there are different uh, uh, goals of, for, 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 this, uh, for the auditory system. You know, on one side, you want to recognize speech sounds as categories. On the other side, you want to localize sound in space with very precise, continuously precise locations. In that case, you don't really want category. You want precise location, you want to be sensitive. And in, in those cases, I think you know, 
the, the slope of tuning curve might be better than you know to discriminate uh, uh, different uh, different uh, locations in in space. So one way to think about that difference is the difference in the task, right? So you're talking about whether it's a, a detection task or a discrimination task. So if you just want to hear, like in some noisy background, if you want to hear the presence of that tone, I want as many neurons sensitive to that tone as possible Absolutely. to see whether it's there or not. You just want to say yes or no, and then the best you're going to do is at your center frequency in terms of a detecting a low-level tone in background. But if you want to tell the difference whether it's exactly that tone or something different, you want different neurons to be responding. And so now you're going to use the slopes. Absolutely. So Absolutely. it depends a little bit on the task of what you're trying of what you're trying to do. And both the are... frequency modulation task was the one that is on my mind, which is one I sort of associate with the cortex. And the, and so there the the frequency is running up and down the slope of the right. of the that, 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 that's that's absolutely right. I mean, people have shown this uh, in in in, uh, in the visual uh, perceptual learning studies when they train the, uh, the the animal to discriminate uh, two visual stimuli. What they saw is that eventually uh, the tuning curves with the slope at that train you know uh, at the training frequencies uh, the slope get steeper. So basically, what it means that if you want, if you train animal to discriminate stimuli, you, you rely on the slopes, and uh, if you train train animal to uh, associate a particular sound with reward, let's say, and that will increase the representation of that sound, and that's why you know that's 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 the case when you want to detect the sound, but you don't really care whether it's slightly different from another sound. So I think that's uh, that's exactly right, but. I mean, again, it, uh, it, it relates to uh, the, 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 your, your opinion on the role of the auditory development. And uh, uh, the way I see it is that uh, uh, the major, uh, one major role of the auditory development is to shape representation of um, species-specific or other behavioral relevant sounds. In that case, you want to have categorical perception of those sounds, and that's why you know, we're seeing these, these plasticity effects. Well, thanks for joining us, Xiao and Ben. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. My pleasure.